Good morning, everyone. My name is Will, one of the pastors here at New Life, and we are continuing along in a series where we're taking a look at various miracles so we could get a clearer picture of the God we worship as our great healer in our lives here today. And so we're trying to attempt to look at the Bible and uh, recorded these miracles thousands of years ago and ask the question, what do these miracles have to do with us in the 21st century modern-day people? And we're trying to look at how each miracle will develop a certain characteristic or attribute of God in Jesus Christ that is completely and utterly relevant and applicable for you and I here today. And so we're going to take a look at a well-known miracle in the Old Testament. So if you're able, I want to ask you to please stand for the reading of God's Word. The Scripture reading will come to us in 2 Kings chapter 5, the healing of Naaman. And I'll be reading from verses 1 to verse 14. This is God's Word for us today. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor. Because of him, the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, Would that my lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his lord thus, and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman, my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive, that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how is he seeking a quarrel with me. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me, that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry and went away, saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Can I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. But his servants came near and said to him, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? As he actually said to you, wash and be clean. So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. This is God's word. You can take your seats. Well, in this wonderful miracle, we can sort of boil it down to asking one question. How do you change in life? How do you change the deeper question that this miracle shows us is that it gives us a picture of conversion. What does it look like to become Christian? But for those of us who are already followers of Jesus, this miracle will reveal to us, how do you change? Real, gospel-centered, everlasting change in your life. And when you look at this, 
this miracle that shows us the real way to be able to change, it shows us through the characters of a narrative, as the parables do in the New Testament, as oftentimes biblical narratives do. And so as we look at this, mir as this miracle, we're going to take it from the perspective of uh, three central figures because their experiences, their life circumstances, their, the uniqueness of their life adds a color to this miracle that shows us how you and I, in the gospel of Jesus, would be able to change, to be godlier, to be more Christ-like. And so the three characters are Naaman, the little girl, and of course the prophet Elisha. But they show us three different perspectives on the ability to change. Naaman himself will show you sort of the roadblocks that hinder change. The little girl shows you the qualities that God likes to generally use to effect change in your life and in this culture and world. And then thirdly, we'll look at Elijah, who is the prophet, who sort of is the agent that effected this change. So we'll look at Naaman that shows us what blocks change. We'll look at the little girl that has characteristics and attributes that God uses for change. It's the avenue of change. And then thirdly, we'll look at Elisha, who is going to be the prophet for change. So let's look at this together. First, Naaman. Naaman shows us really the characteristics that block change. And I want to say that carefully because if you're like Naaman, it's not really his attributes in and of itself that are considered sinful or unholy, but it's the fact that he found his identity in these specific attributes and characteristics. You know, they say that one's identity will dictate one's methodology. So, for example, if you're a policeman, you tend to use police tactics in order to execute justice. If you're a doctor, you execute medical practice in order to heal people. If you're a teacher, you use pedagogical tactics in order to educate your students. So your identity will dictate your methodology. And that's what we see in Naaman because his identity was somebody who was powerful, accomplished, he was achieved, he had connections, he had everything that you and I actually want in our lives and our careers. Let's look at sort of the descriptions of Naaman here in terms of his qualities, characteristics that I think he found his identity in. Read with me verse 1. Naaman, the commander of the army of the king of Syria, he was a great man with his master and in high favor. Because of him, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria, he was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now there's a juxtaposition, there's a contrast in this description of Naaman. But very simply, you could look at sort of the clout. You could see his accomplishments. He had a resume that was really impressive. He was the commander, the general of the most powerful army back in that day. Syria was the most powerful nation at this time. It was the greatest army of the land. And you look at these descriptions. He was a great man. He was somebody that was high favor with the king. You know what that meant? He had connections. He had a great network. His LinkedIn was pretty impressive. And he was a man of valor, which means that he was somebody that won. He gave victory after victory. That's probably why he rose up in the ranks and became general. He gave victory after victory for the king. That's why he had a level of clout and was able to have high favor. He was a great man, and he had connections to the king. He was successful. He was well-known. He had credentials, you see. He had everything you and I would want. He had everything that we strive for in this sort of American cultural context that we find ourselves in. He was well-connected. But here's the thing, friends. Here's the contrast. 
Compliment after compliment in verse 1. And then finally, how does the description of Naaman end? It says this, but he was a leper. For all the things that he was and accomplished, he was a leper. Now, what is leprosy? Modern-day disease is called Hansen's disease, but I think Old Testament leprosy was actually far worse than what modern-day Hansen's disease is. We know at least about leprosy. It was an exterior physical condition in which your skin was flaky, it was white. They sometimes recorded body parts that just fell off because it completely devastated and deteriorated the physicality of your body. That's leprosy. But more so, religiously in Old Testament law, leprosy meant that you were unworthy. You were unclean. Leprosy meant in Jewish thinking, you can't worship with us, you can't hang out with us, you are unworthy, you're cast out, you're an outsider, you're a nobody. So leprosy wasn't just a physical illness, but it was also a community spiritual illness. It represented a bigger picture of a brokenness and sin that you and I have. Spiritually speaking, you and I are lepers. That's what leprosy represented. Naaman was powerful, connected, successful, but he was a leper. He was an outcast. He represented in his leprosy everything that this world was broken about. For all the things that he was, he was the scarlet letter of Old Testament. He had this badge that says, I'm never going to belong. I'm a social outcast, physically deformed. For all who Naaman was and all that he accomplished, friends, his connections, what drives the plot of the story was that last little phrase, after all these credentials, after all this education, after all these Nobel Prizes, after all the things that he was able to accomplish and achieve, he was dirty. You don't want to be friends with him. And it applies this for us. All that he accomplished, the greatest commander of the greatest army, direct access to the king, it shows that Naaman still was not satisfied in life. He was unhappy. Something was missing still. There's still something wrong in his experience. After all that he has, he had money and connections, but he was a leper. It meant that there was something unhappy in his life, in his living, in his heart. There's something that was wrong, something that was empty. He wasn't fully happy. There was more that he wanted out of life. He couldn't find it in possessions and power and connections, and something was restless in his heart. Friends, if you're honest with yourselves, you could recognize that there is momentary accomplishments and goodness that are legitimate, but you will recognize as accomplished and as educated and as achievement-oriented as you may be, you'll recognize through it all, there's still something missing. That's quote-unquote modern-day leprosy. That's the spiritual experience of us today. Well, let me try to make my point. There was an article in People.com entitled, Fame and Fortune Don't Make You Happy, and it quoted this well-known artist, Lady Gaga, and this is what she said. Money has been put on a pedestal. Beauty has been put on a pedestal. Celebrity has been put on a pedestal. But I have traveled the world, she says, and seen the happiest people in the poorest parts of the world. Their values are intact. In fact, the richest homes, in the richest homes, I meet the saddest and most distressed people. Now, obviously, it's not a Christian gospel-centered, reformed theology perspective. It's just a life perspective. And no one, if I could be as humble as to say this, no one in this room, as good and beautiful and great as you are, none of you will be as influential or as accomplished as Lady Gaga. You just won't be that. And even she could say something like this. 
Well, if you switch gears, in another article, there was an editor in Inc.com, John Brandon, and he had this article talking about the five myths almost everyone believes about success and power and achievement. Five myths. And one of them, he says, is that we fall into this delusion, and again, not a Christian, it's a business article. We fall into this delusion that we think success, achievement, money, and power will bring total fulfillment in life, but not really. And this is what he says. Once you have achieved success over a long period, say by building up a company or reaching a sales quota, there is a temporary sense of well-being. It feels good in the moment. He writes, however, personal success can sometimes come at a cost to yourself and to your relationships around you. It's not as fulfilling as it seems. The money comes poor again, but deep satisfaction in life remains elusive. Friends, whether you're John Brandon in an executive role, whether your fame and fortune is like Lady Gaga, they're both right, both from a non-Christian perspective. Humanity tells us this. We all have, at the end of the day, apart from Jesus, a leprosy. Not because of just our sin, but the dissatisfaction in life. There's something that eats against you, even for the most accomplished and achievement-oriented among us. That's Naaman. Naaman was that person. Naaman is somebody that would resonate with John Brandon and famous people who had fortune and accomplishments. He had everything that you would want in status and power, but yet there's something missing in his life because he had leprosy. Now, how do you know that you're like Naaman? How do you know like you're one of these people that find your identity in your accomplishments and your achievements, and that's why you feel restless and unsettled? How do you know? What are some criteria to know, even in Naaman's life, that he was like this, that found his identity, loved success and and accomplishments too much that he thought it would give him the secrets to life. How do you know that you're like this? Well, there's a couple of easy ways to do this. One of the clearest ways is to ask yourself, and better yet, ask the people around you, are you an entitled and angry person? People who tend to find their identity in their achievements and therefore their methodology is through connections and money, they're entitled and they tend to be a little bit angry. That's pretty simple. That will be a very clear sign that most likely you have found your identity in some version of your achievements or success. Naaman was like this. Read with me verse 11. Verse 11 says, But Naaman was angry, and he went away. Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Now the context here is that Naaman went to the king of Israel, please heal me. The king had his own issues, and he got anxious. And by the way, he's another example of somebody who found his identity in power. It makes you anxious. It makes you restless. It makes you self-concentrated. The king was saying, what is this? I can't make people alive. I can't heal people. No, I can't do this. You're trying to start a war with me. So the good guy that Elijah is says to the king, why are you mourning? Why are you so upset? You know, send Naaman over to me. And Naaman goes over to the house of Elisha, expects his prophet to wave his magic wand and that he'll be cured of his leper. But what does Elisha do? He sends out his secretary, sends out his courier. Hey, you go tell, you go tell Naaman what he's got to do. Now, Naaman gets this. He got denied by the king. He thought he'd get the greatest prophet in the God of Israel. But what does he get coming out to meet with him? The secretary. He gets the messenger, the mailman, the courier. And so he was greeted with somebody who wasn't first or second command. He was greeted by someone in his status, in his hierarchy of his heart, somebody low on the totem pole. 
That's why he was angry in verse 11. Actually, it says that in verse 12, he turned and went away in a rage. He felt so disrespected. He felt so upset. He didn't get the clout that he wanted. He didn't get the relationships. He didn't get the greeting that he wanted. Well, why? Because he was entitled. Of course the king would meet with me. I gave him a letter from my king. I had connections. Of course the king would meet with me. I have 10 changes of clothing. I had the best clothing and fashion in the land. I brought $2.5 million. That's just one estimate of all the shekels and all the gold that he brought in order to buy me the best medical expertise to cure me. But he doesn't get this. What does he get? He gets a courier. He's angry. He goes in rage. Even verse 11, the grammatical structure in verse 11 emphasizes the personal pronouns I and me. I thought he would come. I thought he would come out to me. It's a self-concentrated person. How do you know that you're like Naaman? How do you know that you have an identity in your success and achievement that makes you unable to change? Think about your life. Ask the people around you. Is your natural response to people and things entitlement and anger, frustration, criticism, disappointment? Naaman thought he would get the red carpet, but he got the secretary. Think about it for yourselves as you go a little bit deeper. Are you always disappointed in people? Are you always disappointed in the way things run? Do you feel angry and annoyed at times because life doesn't operate in the way that you want? Do you always feel a little bit disrespected? Here's a real thing. If you're like Naaman, you always want to go to the king. You never want to go to the courier. Whenever you get the courier, you get offended. You always want to get to the king. Whenever the king doesn't meet with you, you feel slighted. That's how you know that you're actually someone that might be like Naaman. And that's why you'll never grow. The penny hasn't dropped. The gospel hasn't hit. The spirit hasn't spoken. Because you're too prideful, it makes you unaware of your spiritual condition. You worship power. You worship success. You find your identity in your connections and achievement. You're always with the elite. You're never with a courier. One way to think about this is this. Here's a description of somebody who's like Naaman and maybe like you. The price that you're willing to pay in the way that you operate like Naaman are relationships. You're going to pay relationships. You don't care if you have good friends, and you're also your physical health and yourself. You'll run yourself into the ground to achieve. That's the price you're willing to pay. You'll sacrifice yourself. You'll sacrifice people around you. That's the price you're willing to pay. Do you know what your greatest nightmare is if you're like Naaman? Your greatest nightmare is humiliation, utter public disrespect. Do you know how the people around you feel if you're like Naaman? They're going to feel used. They're going to feel abused. They're going to feel like your relationship and your words are inauthentic. Do you know what your common emotion is generally for people like Naaman? Naamanites, anger, disappointment, frustration. That's your spiritual diagnosis of people who have Naamanitis. That's the perspective. That's the picture. These are symptoms of power achievement-sick people. As Mary Bell, a counselor, once said, achievement is the alcohol of our time. We could get drunk off of alcohol and scotch and beer, but we could get drunk off of power, success, and achievement. That's the question. If you're not growing, just ask yourself, are you a Naamanite? Are you like him? Is that how you operate in your relationships? 
Now look at the people in your calendar, look at the people on your phone. And by the way, no one's saying that you can't be friends with who you want to be friends with. It's just saying, is your friendship dictated by your identity, and your identity is grounded in achievements and power and success and money? Because you'll never grow. And this shows us the second way, because God tends to not just use people who identify with power, he actually tends to use people who are the unknown, the marginalized, those who are humble, those who are broken. That's how God uses people, but also changes people through humility, through lowliness, a sense of brokenness, a sense of neediness, a dependency. That's going to be our second point, the little girl. Now, if you contrast the little girl with Naaman, you can see this. There are two approaches to God, one like Naaman and one like the little girl. The little girl, she's an Israelite. Naaman was an Aramean. The little girl was a slave, a maiden, a servant. Naaman was a great man. She was the captain's servant. He was a commander of the greatest army in the land, army of the land. He had famous success and access to the king. She had no name. She doesn't even have a name here. She's nameless. And he waited upon Naaman's wife. The contrast couldn't be any stronger. This is how you know that she's lowly, she's marginalized, that she's somebody who's humble and broken. First, according to Naaman, on his standards, she was a foreigner, so that means they were racist. Secondly, she was a slave, that means she was oppressed. She was young, which means that they were ageist. She was female, which means that they were sexist. She was nameless, which means that they were elitist. That's the contrast. And here's the real miracle of the story. She's the one who lost her parents. Naaman most likely killed her parents as he overtook another territory. She's probably 12 to 14 years old. Here's the real miracle. Lost her parents, enslaved, completely ostracized. But you know what? She loves Naaman. She cares about him. She's the hero of the story on the human level. She says to her mistress, Would not my master go to this prophet of my God? I think he could heal him. Now, think about this. That little girl, if you were that little girl, and this guy doesn't give you the time of day, doesn't give you a name, kills your parents, how would you be like with this little girl? You'd probably be like, every day I love to see that he got leprosy. Every day, another flake of skin peeled off and blew away with the wind. Another day, he was struggling with restlessness and midlife crisis because as powerful as he is, he's still upset with his life. I love that. Be vindictive. You resonate with that. At least that's probably me. I would hate this guy, but what does she do? Would not my king, my father, go to see the prophet of my Israel so that he could be healed? She cares. She's a bold evangelist. Verse 3 says this. She said to her mistress, Would that my lord were with a prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. That's amazing because God uses people like a little girl. If you're wondering why people don't change around you, if you realize that you're not actually very fruitful to your community, not actually gospel-centered, fruitful, spirit-filled in the way that you relate to people, you yourself are not changing, maybe ask yourself, do you have the worldly characteristics of Naaman or the gospel qualities, virtues of the little girl? This insight I got from Tim Keller in his book, Counterfeit Gods, and he says this, throughout the whole history of the Bible. He says, and I'm paraphrasing, over and over again, the Bible 
in the Bible, it's not the loved women, not always the beautiful women through whom salvation comes. It's always the girl nobody wanted. It's always Leah, not Rachel. It's always Hannah. It's always Sarah, the woman and the women, too old to have children. It's never the person you think. It's always the younger brother, not the older brother. It's always the younger brother who gets the inheritance, not the older brother. Over and over again, we see this in the Bible. Always throughout Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, God always flips things upside down, goes antithetical and countercultural, and says it's always the girl that no one wanted, always the one that couldn't bear any children, always the one who didn't have family lineage, always the one who actually had multiple husbands, always the one who's going to be, in some sense, ostracized in the community because of her sin and her scarlet letter. Over and over, that's the guy, woman, the person that God chooses to accomplish change. It's always the younger not the older. You know why? Because salvation, contrary to the way the world works, always comes through the weak, the humble, the broken, the contrite, the rejected, the unwanted. That's how the gospel comes in. And because ultimately salvation, healing and wholeness, comes through the great healer in Jesus Christ. He came to earth like this little servant girl, he got rejected. He was a carpenter. He had nothing that Naaman had. He did in heaven, but he gave it all up. But he came as a carpenter. Lowly man, humble clothes, rode on a donkey. He came to earth like this little servant, and he went to the cross, and he died for our sins. He came in as a king in the universe, but died the death of a criminal. He came to throw the paradigms and the valleys that you and I hold upside down and says, I want to effect change. I'm bringing salvation to the world. I'm not going to come through power. He could snap his finger and change the world, but what he demonstrated to the world, the paradigm, the method that he wanted to operate on, and that was grace, truth, humility, sacrifice, death, love. That's how Jesus works. Remember, your identity will determine your methodology. As a child of God, as a Christian, we would operate in our relationships with grace, with patience, with love, joy, peace, goodness, other-centeredness, humility. So if you're not seeing change around you in your marriage, in your children, your friendships, your life, your CG, your DG, if you don't feel change in the way that you live your life, ask yourself, are you a Naamanite or are you like a little girl? The little girl's the hero of the story. She's the one that blows people's minds away. And this leads us to our last point. You know, Elijah... Elijah is the man of the hour, but the irony is, is that no one ever talks to him face to face. When he talks to the king, it's probably through a messenger. When he talks to Naaman, he sends out his courier and his messenger. He's the man of the hour. He's the prophet. He's the healer. Read with me verse 14. This is how eventually Naaman was actually healed. This is the advice that the messenger of Elijah gave to him. And it says, he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child. And he was clean. He was clean. See, that's packed in there. Remember, Elijah sent on his messenger, go dip yourself in the Jordan seven times and you'll be restored. He goes off in a rage and he's angry because he's entitled and he thought, I'd get the king, I got, thought I'd get the prophet, but i get the messenger and the secretary. So as he's sulking and he's angry, then 
Naaman's own people says, would you not listen to the good word of Elijah's messenger? Reluctantly, he goes over, dips himself in, takes no effort at all, and he becomes clean. This is a funny thing. Clean like a baby, like a child. Everyone knows that when you have a baby and seen a baby, their skin is immaculate. <laughs> it's clean and it's white and it's like smooth and there's no blemishes in a newborn baby. That's basically what happened to Naaman. It tells us he just wasn't cured of leprosy. He was restored. He was created anew. It was almost like a new birth, flesh of a little child. Now, C.S. Lewis captures this, I think, well, in a beautiful picture of conversion that also involved a, a going into a water. And there's a scene in, from one of his books, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, in which this dragon who represents just any human being struggling with sin, this dragon by the name of Eustace, talks about, with his cousin, the cleansing power of the Christ figure, Aslan, who's this great lion. And Eustace is telling the story to his cousin, Edmund. And basically, as a summarize, he said he met with this great lion, a lion who looked powerful, a lion who approached closer and felt more immense and easily could knock over a dragon of himself. But this lion, as powerful as he was, was gracious and he was kind and he was gentle. He says, do you want to become the real you? You got to peel off the scales of your dragon. So he says he tried to do this, and he would peel off and scratch off the scales, and after he got rid of one layer of scales, guess what was under that? Another fresh layer of scales. That's supposed to represent moralism. You want to change yourself through your efforts and name and night approach to life? It's never going to work because you need deep surgical heart change. So then the lion says, okay, let me try it myself. And the lion goes, and he says, according to the testimony of Eustace, the very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it went right into my heart. And we began pulling the skin off. It hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. But he slowly ripped off the thick, muddy, dirty skin until I saw this suit of a dragon scale laying there, which was my old self. And I found myself to be smaller and clean. And I go and dip myself into the water. And it hurt for a second, but just a second. And I realized they came out whole, restored, renewed. You see, friends, that was Naaman. And also, if you're a believer, that's going to be you. Some of you just try to scratch the scales off your sin. It's like surface level, not much work, not much Bible reading, not much confession, not much dedication. And you're saying, oh, nothing ever changes in life. Well, it's because you're like Eustace. You're just raping the scales off. But underneath you, what you, you know what you have? Just another layer of the same old self of your sin. That's why we struggle with the same marital issues for many years. That's why we struggle with the same restlessness in our careers and relationships. That's why we still deal with the same temptations that we have in our lives because we're just ripping off the scales, but it's only the surface level. You have to let Jesus Christ, the great Aslan, dig deep into the heart and that process of change, man, it's hurtful. Any idolatry, any brokenness, any pain and hurting, if you want to grow and you want to heal and allow the great healer to do this, it's got to go deep. He's got to do the work. You can't do it yourself. Naaman thought he could do it himself. That's why he says, I'm going to buy my healing. I'm going to take the scales of my life off through my money and my connections, but it didn't work. You have to be like the little girl. It's going to be painful. It's going to be difficult. It's going to take a lot of effort, friends. But if you let Jesus do this, he'll go deep into the heart and it's going to rip you apart. 
so that you could come out new like a baby. Naaman thought he could do this by being 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, 10 changes of clothing. He thought through his performance and his work, he could actually take the scales off of his life, but he's not able to do this. You and I are very similar. Many people are. In an article I read in 2014 in The Atlantic, talking about the former mayor of New York, Michael Bloomberg, he had the audacity to say something like this. I have reduced obesity. I've eliminated smoking from public places. I've neutered the gun violence on the streets. I've promoted the human health, human safety, the human flourishing. Human flourishing, I love that. I'm telling you, if there is a God when I get to heaven, I'm not stopping at the gate to be interviewed. I'm going straight in. I've earned my place in heaven. It's not even close. Nobody can stop me. That's Naamanite right there. Is that you? Not even stopping by to the gatekeeper of Jesus Christ because I know based on my performance and my work, I'm good enough to go in. If you're like this, you'll never take the scales off your life. The easiest and the freest thing to do to change is going to be utterly by the work of Jesus and his grace for you. All Naaman had to do to be changed, he heard the message through the mechanism of the little girl, and he just jumps into the pool. And the pool did all the work as we are able to receive and jump into the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ for you and me. That's how you change. Allow the word of God and allow the people around you to go deep into your heart by the spirit and by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Then he'll rip you apart to make you completely new. How do you know that Naaman changed? Well, we didn't read these verses, so we won't spend too much time on this. He changed because first he believed in the God of Israel, but his attitude changed. He went from anger and rage to thankfulness. He went from using his resources to buy his way in to giving his stuff away, generosity. Verse 15, which I know he didn't read, but later on this is what it shows, the after effects of him going into salvation in the pool. Then he returned to the man of God, Elijah, he and all his company, and he came and stood before them, and he said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but God in Israel. So accept now a present from your servant. See, he uses resources in order to buy his way in. You know how people do this? I want something from you, so it's transactional. I'm going to give you this so you do something for me. His attitude changed. That present, I think, indicated a thankfulness. That present represented, I'm not going to use my money to buy something. I'm going to use my money to give something, to present something. It's not always about winning. It may be about losing. Others around you may not actually feel used by you, but loved by you. The person who worships power doesn't love you or even like you. The person who worships success is going to use you and step upon you. But the person who goes through real radical change will love you, fellowship with you, walk alongside of you. Let me end with this. Why did Elijah not come out to meet with Naaman? You ever think about that? Why did he send his courier's messenger? Was he too busy? Why did he do this? Well, commentators probably say it's because Naaman was a leper, so if Elijah went out, he would be ceremonially unclean. That means he would be dirty. He'd have to go through a ritual process of cleansing. He wouldn't go into the worshiping community. So in order to protect himself, he stayed in the house and sent his messenger to do his dirty work. That's why Elijah probably didn't come out. See, I said that Elijah is the true agent of change, but not really. The true agent of change is the true and better Elijah, Jesus Christ. 
In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus also in the beginning of his ministry begins to heal people and cure people. And in chapter 5, there's a leper that comes out to Jesus. Let's read that together. I'll read it for you. Luke chapter 5, verses 12 to 13. This is what it says. While he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his faith and begged them, face and begged them, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. You see, Elijah sort of had this power. He had a prophetic voice of God, but he's saying, I'm staying in the house because I'm going to get dirty if I talk to Naaman, so I'm going to send my messenger to do the dirty work. He points to the true and better Elijah in Jesus Christ. Jesus doesn't stay in the house. He goes out. Elijah, if he touched Naaman, he would have been clean. He would have been unclean and made dirty. He would have been ostracized, marginalized. He would have been deemed filthy and dirty. But you know what happens for the first time in history A guy doesn't stay in the house, but he goes out, and that's Jesus. And when Jesus goes out, the leper becomes clean. That's why Jesus is the true healing power. He's the true and better Elijah. Every one of us tend to stay in our house, and we send somebody else to do our dirty work. Jesus is the only one who shows that in himself he has the power to make us whole, to make us clean, that he is indeed Aslan. He will rip your heart apart and rip your skin apart to make you anew. Why? Because he doesn't stay in the house of God in the kingdom of heaven, but he went out into the world, came down upon the cross, and he took your leprosy upon himself to make you clean so that the first time in history, someone comes out of the house. He went out of the house, the kingdom of God for you and me. And if you just receive him, if you just dive into him, soak into him by faith, let him do the work of operating in your heart. Then and only then you'll have characteristics like the little girl. Then you'll begin to see change. Others of you may stay to be like Naaman. And you'll struggle with the same things. Great resume, great house, great job, but you're going to be a leper. Only when you let Jesus Christ, the true and better Elijah, come out of the house and touch you to make you clean from your sin, then and only then you'll begin to fly. Friends, let's turn to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we thank you so much for the true and better Elijah in Jesus Christ. Elijah shows us that you use people throughout the biblical times, but they all point and culminate in the greatest prophet who is divine revelation in himself in Jesus, the consummate Elisha for us. Lord, thank you that he didn't stay in the house. We thank you that he comes out to heal this world and help us have a real hope of genuine, authentic, legitimate spiritual change as he takes our leprosy upon himself. Lord, we thank you so much. May we worship you at this time and thank you for the grace that we received. In his name of Christ we pray, amen.